0: Our sermon passage this morning is John chapter 16, verses 19 through 33. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, and you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? "A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble." but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it we catch a glimpse of who you are. You reveal who you are. And so we see who we are in you. So I pray, Lord, as we search out the treasure of your scriptures here, that you would move on our hearts to show us Jesus, show us his glory, that we may trust in him all the more. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when I say the word hope, what do you think? What is is hope? What does it mean to be hopeful? It's a word we use a lot, but what do we mean? What do we populate our minds with when I say the word hope? I think for some of us, hope is a a feeling that ebbs and flows. We say we feel, feel hopeful, and we usually mean we feel optimistic. We're looking at the future and we're thinking, okay, things are going to work out. These circumstances are going to go okay. But that's a feeling that kind of ebbs and flows, right? Comes and goes. I think for other people, we think of hope as a, like a character trait. Somebody who has like a stubborn, stubborn refusal to let sad sentences end with a period. Like somebody who just will not give up. And so, in that case, hope is a character trait that some people have. But some people don't. What if I told you that before it's anything else, before we start talking about feelings or character traits, that for us, hope is a person. Before it's anything else, for the Christian, hope is a person. It's not primarily a feeling or a character trait. That the source of our confidence when we think about who we are, when we think about uh, the possibilities of transformation in our hearts, when we think about tomorrow, that the source of our confidence isn't how we feel about it or isn't a character trait that we may or may not have, that the root of our confidence is our God. For us, hope, first and foremost, is a person. What Romans 15, 13 in our call to worship said, the God of hope. Friends, your future does not depend on your feelings. And that's good news because your feelings are going to be like a roller coaster sometimes. Your future does not depend upon your ability to draw up within yourself some confidence and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and face whatever comes ahead because your strength is going to run out. Your future, your confidence depends on who God is who God has shown himself to be in Jesus. Our hope is our God and what he's done. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And uh, uh, we'll break it up into a couple of different sections. The first one's this, the puzzling answer of Jesus. The puzzling answers of Jesus. And so in this passage, Jesus has already been speaking for a couple of chapters. He's on the eve of his arrest. The next day after he has said these words is his crucifixion. And he knows that the last three years he's spent with his disciples where they've been traveling together, where he's been doing his ministry, and they've been right there, is coming to an end. That he's going to face his crucifixion, that he'll be raised from the dead. But even after that, Jesus will ascend to the Father and send the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are about to go through a pretty traumatic experience of change in their lives. What they've known day in, day out for the last three years is about to change. And so Jesus is telling them what comes next. He's told them that he's about to face death at the hands of political and religious leaders drunk on their own power. And that's not an accident. He's told them that he'll be raised from the dead and he'll be vindicated. He's told them he's going to send the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence that will energize them to be witnesses that Jesus is alive and that changes everything. He's told them that to accomplish what God has planned, to save them, to rescue all of God's lost children, that it has to be this way. That what Jesus is walking into is the way that the darkness that covers our world like a blanket will be defeated. That this is the way and the only way for their sins to be forgiven. That this is the way that all the wrong of our world will be made right but they have questions and of course they do they have questions i understand the disciples here they want to know and so as you read through the last you read through uh, chapter 13 through 17 in john the disciples are asking questions because they want to know everything that jesus has said and done in their presence the last few years has flipped everything in their lives on its head and so, so many things that they just took for granted in their life has flipped upside down. They're a bit uh, discombobulated, to use one of my favorite words. It's exploded their pre-existing categories, and they're trying to make sense of it. They're doing what we all do when new information presents itself, trying to make it fit. And if you read through the Gospel of John, or any of the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus often gets asked questions... And you'll see it often seems like Jesus does not answer these questions at all. I don't know if you've ever read through and been puzzled, like me, at Jesus' interactions with people. Sometimes people will ask Jesus questions, and He'll say things in response to them. It sounds like He's talking to somebody else. Or sometimes Jesus will answer a question with a question, which, woo. He'll answer a question by asking them a question. Now, I don't think Jesus is doing this because he's trying to be mysterious or he's trying to frustrate anybody. I think, uh, and he's not avoiding answering questions. I think what Jesus does with his disciples, he does with us too, is he's trying to get them to the heart of the matter. They're asking questions as if, their greatest need is more information. Questions aren't bad. Let me say that on the front end. They ask questions as if their greatest need is more information and as if Jesus is here as the best teacher, but he's just a dispenser of facts. Like they can ask questions and he'll answer the questions. Like smartest guy in the room. As if their greatest need is more information. But I think what Jesus is doing to his disciples here is letting them know that they are not primarily people who are ignorant and just need the right things to believe. Their primary problem is not that they don't have enough information. Now, He is truth, and He leads in truth. But His point to them, He's not come... Jesus didn't come and start a college. I love school. I, I do. I loved all my, all my schooling. But Jesus did not come and start a school He's not just here to dispense information because we are primarily not people who are ignorant and just need the right facts to believe. We are people in a world that is upside down and we need the light of God to shine into our darkness. We need a God who will not just give us answers, but who will act to rescue us from the chaos of sin. We don't first need answers. We first need Him. Answers come after that. Jesus does not tell us to turn off our intellectual curiosity. We can ask questions, and we can mine Scripture to find the right answers. I mean, the history of, of earth sciences is people asking questions and discovering answers that God has put into His world. Asking questions is not a bad thing at all. But our primary need is not facts or information. We first need Him. Before Jesus faces his crucifixion here, he needs his disciples to understand this clearly so that they later on will not depend on their own understanding as the basis of their confidence. He could have told them every fact in the universe right then, but he needs them to know down the road in your life, your confidence is not that you've got the right worldview and intellectual system where you can plug everything in and everything makes sense and everything's fine. You're going to need me. So they won't treat Jesus like just another teacher, even the best one, so that they will know how deep the rescue mission that Jesus is on and accomplishing runs and know the depth of the extent of God's love for them, a love that is beyond comprehending. And that brings me to my second section here, the glasses of Jesus' death and resurrection. The glasses of His death and resurrection. We all have things that shape how we see and interpret the world around us. Our, Our experiences shape how we receive new information. Our backgrounds... Shape us, Our basic beliefs on how the world works, they're like glasses we wear. It shapes how we experience the world. And Jesus speaks in this passage of his disciples not yet being able to understand. Do you notice he tells them that, he doesn't tell them that they haven't thought hard enough. He doesn't say like go back to the drawing board and think harder. He essentially tells them here actually that they haven't been given the right glasses yet. And what I think he means in this passage is that to truly understand God, to truly get who God is, they will need to see through the glasses of his crucifixion and resurrection. That's what Jesus, I think, is saying in verse 25 when he says that there will be a time when he tells them plainly about the Father. That's what the cross and the tomb are. It is Jesus speaking in a deeper way than mere words. The cross and the resurrection are Jesus telling plainly about his Father. Jesus has told the disciples that he's come to bring them divine joy and so that their joy will be complete. But how could they possibly understand this apart from seeing the depth of his commitment to them and his death for them? That's how committed God is to bring joy and a complete joy to his people. Impossible to understand without the lens, without the glasses of the cross and the tomb. How could they possibly believe the words about eternal life in a world of death unless they see Jesus raised from the dead, bringing God's new creation to life? Think of it this way. The cross of Jesus is God's no to the chaos of our world. It's his definitive word, his no to the chaos of sin in our world. It's the ultimate demonstration of his commitment that sin will not have the final word about his people. It will not have the final word about the world he created and called good that no matter how much sin has marred us, God will go as far as it takes to stop it. He will wear the penalty of our sin's guilt. He will allow himself to be shamed and degraded at his cross so that we can see that shame's power runs out beside God's grace. He will collect our pain to himself and let the storm of sin's chaos have its way with him the ultimate display of God's wrath against the wrong of our world, and in all of it, what we hear is God's no to the darkness that has us trapped. That's what the cross is. It's God the Son coming to earth as one of us and saying, No, it will not have its way with my people. It will not. And because we hear that no in the cross of Jesus we can know in a deeper way than if Jesus had just started rattling off true facts about who God was. Chaos and sin, the sin of others against you, the sins you've committed, they cannot be the final definition of you. It cannot be the determiner of who you are. It cannot be the determiner of your future. God will move heaven and earth because He has. God will enter into our history as one of us to ensure this is true. And beside that no of the cross, beside that no, God speaks in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his yes to us. That's his yes to us. The cross is the no, the resurrection is the yes. Yes to us being made new. Yes to us receiving his joy, joy that will not end, joy that cannot be taken away, joy given from him to us. Yes, joy rooted in him and his commitment to us. Yes, to a future carried along by his love. Yes, to forgiveness and cleansing. Yes, to being justified in God's sight by faith and faith alone. Yes, to healing. Yes, to community. Yes, to being on mission with Jesus, empowered by him in the here and now, energized by his love. Friends, Jesus receives the no of God against our sins so that we will not. Jesus faces what he does alone so that we may know that we are never for a moment alone. Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we know that when we feel like we need to cry that out, God answers that question with no, I have not. Because the Jesus who cried that out on the cross is the Jesus that was raised from the dead three days later. And he shows us in that that what God works in death is resurrection. God vindicates those who place their trust in him. That's the yes and the no that is heard in the cross and the tomb. This is the lens, these are the glasses through which we see who. God is not just words, but a God who enters our history to act, to free us. The disciples could not see or understand who God was until they had heard this no and yes, and neither can we. Neither can we. We have to put on the glasses of His crucifixion and resurrection to begin to grasp, even for a moment, who He is and His intentions for us. I'm hammering this home, but so many times... In our world, so many times when Christians start talking about God, we speak about God as if Jesus did not need to exist. We start talking about God this, God that, as if the crucifixion and resurrection are not the watershed events of human history. We're invited to put these glasses on and to see everything, everything through them to see God's intentions, to see the power of His grace so that our hope will not be in ourselves, or as I said at the beginning, our hope will not be in our feelings or our character traits, but our hope will be in Him. And that brings me to my last section. I think this is my last section. Yes, Uh, Christ our hope. Christ our hope. The disciples are uh, at the beginning of a very deep grief that's going to settle over them for the next few days. When Jesus finishes saying these words here, he prays for his disciples, which is John 17, will be in that next week. And he goes immediately from there to be arrested. And then the mock trials, this uh, unbelievable injustice. And then he's crucified. And as he says, his disciples who feel so confident that they now understand are going to be scattered they're going to abandon him. They're going to scatter like sheep whose shepherd has been struck down. But Jesus here tells them before it happens that it's going to happen. He tells them before it happens that he knows that his friends who are looking him in the eye right now that he is speaking to are about to abandon him. Why does he tell them this? Not to shame them, It's not so that they feel worse later on. Jesus isn't telling them, you're about to scatter and abandon me so they feel really, really guilty in 12 hours when they do it. No, he tells them this because he wants them to know that their good intentions and their commitments are going to fail. They feel really powerful right now. They're going to follow after Jesus. They're going to abandon him. He's letting them know now that their hope is not their good intentions, that their commitment to him is going to fail, and at the same time he tells them that their grief will turn to joy, he tells them that he is bringing them peace. He is bringing them peace, not because they stick it out. It's not a reward they get later on because they were really tough in those three days when Jesus was dead, before he was raised from the dead. No, they cower with fear. They flee. No, in fact, their good intentions dwindle down and die to nothing in the face of grief and fear. And Jesus brought them peace anyway. He brought them peace anyway because their good intentions were never the point. He tells them here, take heart right before they abandon him, hours before they abandon him. Take heart. Take heart. Now I want you to stop and think about this. The reason we know this. The reason we know that the disciples abandoned Jesus in the time of his greatest trial is because later on they talked about it and would not stop talking about it. The reason we have the Gospels is because these guys wrote this down. And what they wrote down was what they had been preaching for decades they talked constantly about how they were cowards. They told people, at the time of my greatest trial, when I really needed to stand up, I cowered in fear. I ran away. I let Jesus down. In a sense, that makes them discredited, right? Right? We don't listen to traitors. In this world, we don't listen to cowards. Talking about being cowardly and betraying your teacher in the time of his greatest struggle is not the way you win credibility or a good reputation. So why did their credibility and good reputation matter so little to them that they would lead with that? Or why would the Apostle Paul, after he had been ministering for decades, write to his uh, protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy, why would he, after planting dozens of churches, writing books of Scripture, write to Timothy this, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I I am the worst. I am the chief. I am the worst sinner I know. Why would the disciples lead with that? Why would the Apostle Paul say that? Because they are hammering home for us today that the gospel of Jesus is all grace, every bit of it. Every bit of it. The so-called founders of Christianity were cowards and traitors. They tell us this so our hope will not be in Peter, our hope will not be in John, our hope will not be in Paul, our hope will be Jesus. Our hope will be Jesus. And the gospel that is all grace, every bit of it. The church is designed to be a community that lives this out, where this is a fundamental truth at the heart of who we are. I've talked about it before, but the church is not a place where we come in and we are leading with our resumes to impress each other. It's not a place where we walk in and we dress up for each other. It's not a place where we come in and we hang our good works on the wall like a museum. The church is not a museum. The church is a hospital where we receive the medicine, the grace we need. Or better yet, the church is a home. A home where we are loved into becoming new people. The message of the gospel is us being swept up into the eternal love of God, finding ourselves as God's delighted in children, and seeing through the lens of Jesus the depth of the Father's love for us. That's what the church is. That's what the message of the gospel is. Anytime we begin to build our identity on anything else, our accomplishments or even our failures, we've gone off course. Jesus did not die and rise from the dead for us to build lives on other foundations. He came to let us know that it does not matter, that it is grace. It is all grace, every single bit of it, period. I've long thought that I can't wait for one day, either in heaven or the new heavens and new earth, to meet the disciples. I've thought this many times since I was a kid. I cannot wait to talk to them to get Peter or John alone and ask them what their lives were like. What was it like to travel with Jesus? What was it like to go out and plant church? What was it like to write scripture? What was it like to travel the entire Roman world and face unbelievable opposition and still preach the gospel? in the What was that like? And maybe one day... Maybe one day in the, in the longness of eternity, I'll get to ask those questions. But you, do you know what? I think it's going to be hard to get them to stop talking about the love of Jesus for them. I don't think they're going to want to talk about all the things that they accomplished and did. Because I think that they are going to be caught up in talking about how much the God of the universe loves them. And do you know what? I think that's going to be true of me too. I think it's going to be hard for me to stop talking about it too. Because do you know how much Jesus loves me? Do you know how much he loves me? Do you know how much he loves you? It's all grace. It's all grace. The joy that is mine and is mine forever is mine because Jesus loves me. The peace that is mine because Jesus loves me. Joy and peace that I don't have to cling to to keep because Jesus keeps it for me and he brings it to me over and over again. That's what's ours in the gospel of Jesus. So like I said at the beginning, for us, hope, when we think about who we are, when we think about the future, hope is not a feeling. It's not a character trait that some people have and some people don't. For us, God has acted in Jesus. Jesus. Hope is a person, a person whose mission is to bring us his joy and peace, and he will not fail on that mission, no matter how often we fail in our lives. And if that's true, and it is, that changes absolutely everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glory of the gospel. I thank you for your commitment to your love for us and your mission to descend in the sun to us and to our world, to descend into our darkness to shine your light, to bring us all that you have for us and to keep us in yourself. This inheritance that cannot spoil or fade because it is not built on things that spoil or fade because it is you. So center us on you. Make this gospel of the kingdom the very center of who we are. And may we never leave it behind. Teach us what it means to be those who are held and kept in grace. And pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.